Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, September 29th, 2011. Where did the month of September go? <laughs> it's all a blur to me. Aye. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there as a result of it. Well, we've got to do the biblical work, we've got to do the comparative work. Uh, to see if what people saying squares with Scripture. Now, there's a few controversies running around out there right now. We're going to continue talking about James McDonald uh, and kind of the fallout of the things that he's been saying, at, at least in promoting uh, the uh, the round two of the um, Elephant in the Room conference in T.D. Jakes. Uh, we're going to take a look at that. Uh, the story that really is uh, consuming the news right now, at least, uh, you know, it's it's. I've been receiving a lot of emails and a lot of tweets and uh, messages via Facebook asking me to, uh, to uh, weigh in regarding the Iranian pastor who has refused to reject uh, his Christian faith and is uh, facing execution. And uh, if you're not aware of the story, I mean, I, I, I'm not exactly how you could miss it, uh, but, you know, it's all just about every media outlet out there is covering the fact that uh, Pastor Youssef uh, Nadar Khani, uh, the head of the network of Christian house churches in Iran, um, could be executed as soon as midnight Wednesday um, in Tehran. So that's, I mean, it, it could happen like any time now. Um and uh, it, it's just absolutely a tragic story. Absolutely a tragic story. So uh, pray for the, uh, uh, pray for Pastor Yusuf, and pray uh, for uh, the Christians in uh, in Iran who are are facing uh, death for their confession of faith. In in, in well, keep this in mind um, that Iran is not the only place where you could die for your faith, and um, you know, confessing Jesus Christ. And uh, and you know and him crucified for our sins and him as the only way of salvation can get you killed just about anywhere, including the United States. And there's growing persecution 
and uh, reaction against Christianity, even in the United States. But our prayer goes out to Pastor Yusuf and uh, and for the uh, the churches there in um, in Iran. And, uh, you know, the, what did one of the church fathers say that uh, the church grows via the, uh, you know, the, the watering uh, of the of the blood of the martyrs? It's kind of a weird, twisted paraphrase that I'm giving you here, but um as horrible as this is as horrible as this is um keep in mind that uh the Christians have faced this type of persecution from the beginning and will continue to face this perse- type of persecution until Christ returns and so um we know that uh, pastor Yusuf uh if, if they hang him um that uh, Christ promises that him him that he will not taste death and uh, and so we're fully confident of the fact that Christ will be there uh, upon his execution to uh, take him to heaven. And then he will join the voice of the holy martyrs in heaven who will cry out to God, um, you know, how long, O Lord, how long? So pray for Pastor Yusuf. Yes, just kind of starting off on a somber note there. Uh, anyway, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Kind of keeping in in the vein that I, you know, well, in the rut. I don't know if, if it's a vein or a rut or what I've been working on here. Uh, the idea is is that uh, there's a lot of serious stuff that needs to be addressed. And uh, today I can announce that by the time this podcast is posted, and it, it won't be posted today, but I'm going to be making available a free ebook. And uh, the free ebook will, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be a PDF document uh, that uh, will go out with this podcast with links to the free ebook. There'll be a Kindle version, there'll be a PDF version, there'll be an ebook version that uh, basically lays out good stuff uh, and good teaching. In fact, even the biblical backbone for the the teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity. Included in the ebook will also be the uh, the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. And uh, several good resources, including something that's uh, a little bit more advanced. And uh, what I mean by that is, is that uh, I will be including part of a uh, of a 19th century Christian dogma, uh, I should say Lutheran dogmatics text, uh, and uh, and its chapter on the doctrine of the Trinity. And um, it, it's uh, it, it 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 would be um, for a layman who doesn't know the languages. Uh, it would be challenging. It would be difficult reading, but it's not impossible. And so I am making it available and asking. I'm, I'm trying to do my best to you know make it at least somewhat accessible to uh, somebody who doesn't know the biblical languages. But if you don't know the biblical languages, don't let that stop you from reading this um, important chapter on the doctrine of the Trinity. So. Uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and um, and you know, we're we're going to kind of um, bring you up to speed on the fact that um, years ago, T.D. Jakes in Christianity Today responded to the charges that uh, the Christian Research Institute uh, put out, re- the article that they put out regarding the fact that uh, that uh, that T.D. Jakes is a modalist. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to uh we're going to listen to I'm going to read to you a uh, part of uh, TD Jakes's response to the allegations made by the Christian Research Institute which we read on the program uh which I read in the co- program a couple of days ago 
And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Elliot Miller's response to T.D. Jakes's response. And because because here's the deal. If you if you read T.D. Jakes's response and what he believes regarding the Godhead uh, that was published in Christianity Today, uh, you would easily be schnookered. That's the best way I can put it. Um, But, you know, so uh, his response uh, was a classic example of uh, doctrinal obfuscation. And uh, and let me just put it this way. On the discernment scale, uh, where 10 being the most difficult uh, difficult uh, uh, thing that uh, you can have regarding ident- the ability to identify uh, something correctly, as not being true, you know, that, so, you know, discernment, your discernment radar would have to be set to 10, and that requires a lot of skill. Uh, This actually comes in at about an an 8.9, so it's pretty high up there on the discernment scale. So we're going to take a look at that, and then we're also going to take a look at uh, Carl Truman's um, uh, blog post that he just posted a few hours ago today, where he he basically makes the claim that uh, that James McDonald's assertion that uh, Nicene Orthodoxy isn't important. Uh, he uh, Carl Truman has uh, t- taken uh, James McDonald to task and basically said that's a very very sectarian sectarian statement on his part. There's I mean there's some serious stuff that's going wrong here with the elephant in the room and uh, and we want to cover that and uh, and then time permitting uh, hopefully we'll have the time. Uh, we're going to take a look at uh, it, uh, the Phil Johnson's response uh, regarding uh, the, something he put on the Pyromaniacs blog regarding uh, Perry Noble's lie and uh, it, that I think is worth sharing with you. So uh, that's what we're going to spend the first hour on today. Second hour, we're going to be listening to a, a Vince Antonucci sermon. It's a bad one. And uh, the uh, the sermon title is entitled, What If God Isn't Mad?, what if God isn't mad? That's the name of the sermon title. So we've got a lot, a lot, a lot of ground to cover today. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith requires you to put your thinking caps on, to sharpen your pencils, potentially take notes, and, of course, as always, to have an open Bible. So that, you know, they just you, know, you, you need to have all of that stuff. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. From Christianity Today, the... Uh, Headline reads, My Views on the Godhead. Uh, T.D. Jakes responds to Christianity Today article, Apologetics Journal Criticizes Jakes. Okay, so this is T.D. Jakes's response to the uh, the uh, Christian Research Institute's uh, journal article, their, uh, the CRI journal article that basically laid out the evidence that T.D. Jakes was a modalist. So this is T.D. Jakes's response, and I'm going to let him speak first and then we're going to let Elliot Miller of the Christian Research Institute uh, provide the counterpoint to this. Again, th- this is like an 8.9, possibly 9.3 on the discernment scale. So you have got to listen very carefully. And if you want to read it, you can find this at Christianity uh, ChristianityToday.com. In their search box, type in my views on the Godhead. And uh, anyway, with that, we're going to dive into it. Here's uh, what T.D. Jakes said. He says, I was raised Baptist and became Pentecostal 26 years ago at a greater Emmanuel Apostolic Church where I was later ordained a bishop. I resigned from that denomination 11 years ago and have continued to fellowship with higher ground, always abounding assemblies. 
This small fellowship of churches is not a denomination and differs in many ways from the traditional apostolic churches. Both chapters of my early spiritual journey contributed volumes to my faith and walk with God, helping to hone my character. I was shaped by the appreci- I was shaped by and appreciate both denominations, but I am but am controlled by neither. My association with oneness people does not cons- constitute assimilation into their ranks any more than my association with the homeless in our city makes me one of them. Now it's important to note that Greater Emmanuel Apostolic Church, um, that is. Um, that's it's oneness, okay? That's modalistic. That that's the they deny the doctrine of the Trinity and teach that God has basically exists in three manifestations. Okay. Jakes continues. He says, Day to day my affiliation uh is with the P- uh, Pater Alliance, an interdenominational network of some two hundred and fifty churches, which I founded three years ago and serve as CEO, senior minister, and mentor, providing leadership for pastors from pes- Presbyterian to Baptist to Pentecostal. My own twenty three thousand member church, the Potter's House in Dallas, is non denominational and growing exponentially. There I serve widely different people whose common desire is to know God and to grow in the knowledge of and the and fellowship with Jesus Christ. While I mix with Christians from a broad range of theological perspectives, I speak only for my personal faith and convictions. I am not a theologian and I avoid quoting even theologians who agree with me. To defend my beliefs, I go directly to the Bible. My views on the Godhead are from 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, which says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. I believe in one God who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe these three have distinct and separate functions, so separate that each has individual attributes, yet are one. I do not believe in three gods. Now, (laughs) I'm going to tell you right there, that is still modalistic oneness Pentecostalism uh, view of, 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 of God. That is not the Trinity, okay? And Elliot Miller will provide, provide the counterpoint. But uh, Jakes continues, he says, Many things can be said about the Son that cannot be said about the Father. The Son was born of a virgin. The Father created the virgin from whom he was born. The Son slept, but the Father never sleeps. The Son took on the likeness of sinful flesh, but God is a spirit. Likewise, characteristics are distinctive to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone empowers and dwells and guides the believer. In spite of all these distinctives... God is one in essence. Though no human illustration perfectly fits the divine, it is similar to ice, water, and steam. Three separate forms, yet all H2O. Each element can coexist. Each has distinguishing characteristics and functions, but all have sameness. In 1 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Without controversy, it is a mystery not always to be figured out, but to be entered into. The language and doctrinal statements of our ministry that refers to the Trinity of the Godhead as manifestations does not derive from modalism. The Apostle Paul himself used the term referring to the Godhead in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, and 1 John 3, 5 through 8. And Peter also used the term in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Now, I'm going to point something out here right from the get-go. If you were to take the time to look up 1 Timothy 3.15, 1 Corinthians 12.7, 1 John 3.5-8, and 1 Peter 1.20, you're going to find something uh, missing uh, from each of those passages, um, unless you're reading an archaic translation, and that is the term that God exists is in three manifestations. None of those texts say that at all. Elliot Miller, again, will be providing the uh, the um, rebuttal here in just a minute. But I just want to point out, um, uh, T.D. Jakes, just referring to a Bible verse, and that's all he's doing here, is saying, oh, yeah, well, the, the word manifestation appears in these passages. He's not giving you what any of those passages say. He's just citing the reference. And when you go to do the lookup, there's something missing. The thing that he said was there isn't there in any of those passages. Now that I've pointed that out, let me read this sentence again. The language and doctrinal statement of our ministry that refers to the Trinity of the Godhead as manifestations does not derive from modalism. The Apostle Paul himself used this term referring to the Godhead in 1 Timothy 3.15, 1 Corinthians 12.7, 1 John 3.5-8. Peter also used the term in 1 Peter 1.12. Can this word now be heresy? when it is a direct quote from the Pauline epistles and used elsewhere in the New Testament? I mean, that's a fine rhetorical question, but the problem is when you go and you read the verses, uh, yeah, the, uh, the what he says is supposed to be in those verses isn't there. We continue, though. T.D. Jake says, I believe Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. I believe he was born of a virgin, crucified on a cross, arose from the dead, and is coming again. For his church, I believe he sent the Holy Spirit to lead and guide the church, and I believe in justification by faith. I also believe that baptism is a commandment to be observed in obedience to God's word. That is not what baptism is in the New Testament. Anyway, he says, the rites of baptism are celebrated in our church by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to point something out here also. Oneness Pentecostals and modalists insist that the baptismal formula is in the name of Jesus only. It is in the name of Jesus only. The fact that T.D. Jakes here confesses that his baptismal formula in the name of Jesus Christ and not in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is further, further proof that he does truly hold to a modalistic view. Anyway, he says the rites of baptism are celebrated in our church by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ. I have always, without exception, baptized as the early church did. That is my conviction based upon Scripture. Now, so that's T.D. Jakes' response that he's a modalist. So he's given clarification, and this is supposed to clear things up, that apparently he's a Trinitarian. Now, here is... Elliot Miller's response. Elliot Miller, a uh, long time with, you know, spent a long time working with Dr. Walter Martin and uh, spent many years at the Christian Research Institute. I don't know if he's still there, but uh, he actually was the one who wrote the response to uh, T.D. Jakes's response to uh, the allegations that he is a modalist. Here's what Elliot Miller says He says, um, the rationale Jakes uses in his defense no doubt strikes a chord with many evangelicals who are weary of division among Christians. Indeed, if the Pentecostals he were referring to were Trinitarian Pentecostals, 
his language might well be appropriate. But when he protests that Christians will never agree on every theological issue and should not judge one another by the diversity of their associates, he begs the following question. Is oneness theology, historically known as modalism, a permissible doctrine for genuine Christians to hold? To put the question in a clearer perspective, imagine if T.D. Jakes' background had been with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Would Christians be sympathetic were he to say, my association with Baptists and Jehovah's Witnesses contributed volumes to my faith and walk with God, helping to hone my character? Yeah, by the way, in that paragraph where he said that you know he had, was associated with Baptists and Pentecostals, each of the Pentecostal groups he referred to there were oneness Pentecostal groups. Okay, so Elliot Miller, to help us put this in perspective, basically asked the question: If uh, he were to say my association, if you change Pentecostals to Jehovah's Witnesses, um, and you know, and then basically rewrite the paragraph, so my association with Baptists and Jehovah's Witnesses contributed volumes to my faith and walk with God. Uh, helping to hone my character, I was shaped by and appreciate both Baptist and Jehovah's Witnesses, but I'm controlled by neither. My association with the Watchtower does not constitute assimilation into their ranks. No, virtually all evangelicals recognize that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Christian scientists, etc., lie outside of the pale of biblical Christianity. Why should it be different with oneness believers? In the 3rd century, Orthodox Christians rejected modalism, also known as Sabellianism, after Sabellius, its most influential teacher. The teaching that the Son, the Holy Spirit, are the same person as the Father, as the denial of the faith. Early in the 20th century, when oneness Pentecostalism reared its head, the Assemblies of God rejected it as heresy. Yet in our own day, uh, of nebulous, experience-driven theology, many charismatic Christian leaders are strongly inclined to accept oneness Pentecostals as brothers and sisters in Christ simply because they speak in tongues, engage in rousing Pentecostal-style worship, and write ardent hymns. Since these, quote, Trinitarians themselves do not have a firm commitment to creedal Christianity— they are willing to compromise even on doctrines as historically sacrosanct as the Trinity for the sake of unity in the Spirit. Oneness believers have historically labeled the Trinity as a pagan doctrine and counted Trinitarian believers as lost. In recent years, however, a new oneness approach to orthodoxy has emerged, paralleling a recent movement in Mormonism. That seeks to downplay the differences and sell oneness as acceptable Christ, as an acceptable Christian alternative. Charisma magazine quotes Pentecostal historian Vincent Sinyan as observing, quote, many people consider this a matter of semantics, and there is a sincere desire, especially in the part of oneness Pentecostals, to bridge the gap on this issue. As we have seen, one of these many people is Jake's himself. If the differences between oneness and Trinitarian believers were a matter of semantics, it would mean that they use different language but believe the same thing. But oneness Pentecostals have articulately expounded their belief that there is only one person in the Godhead. For Trinitarians, a defining feature of, of the biblical God is a subject 
is a subject-object love relationship eternally existing within his own being. For Unitarians of all stripes, not just the sect by that name, until he created the angels in the world, God was a solitary subject, absolutely alone. Such, such radically different conceptions of God cannot be harmonized, whether it is the Aryan God of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Sabalian God of Oneness Pentecostals. A Unitarian God is not the biblical God. Since the attributes of God include both love and self-sufficiency, it follows that his loving nature must be fulfilled within his own being. The biblical revelation of the Trinity explains how this is so. Some Christians assume that because oneness believers confess that Jesus is God, their error is less lethal than that of the Jehovah's Witnesses or other pseudo-Christian cults that deny his deity. The opposite can be true. Modalism is no less false than Arianism, but not so obviously false, and therefore it is potentially more lethal. Just as the Godhead that is not defined by selflessly loving relationship of three uh, eternal persons is not the Godhead of the Bible, so a Jesus whose very existence is not defined by a subject-object relationship with his Father bears no resemblance to the Jesus of the Bible. And there is no biblical basis for believing that those who trust in a different Jesus, see 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 4, as well as chap, uh, verse 13 and 14, that there, those who trust in a different Jesus can be saved, especially when one adds the different gospel that typically accompanies it, as with the common oneness teaching that one must both be baptized in Jesus' name alone and speak in tongues in order to be saved. No doubt some oneness Pentecostals are saved due to early biblical influences in their life. With his Baptist upbringing, this is easy to imagine in the case of Jake's, but this would be despite and not because of oneness teaching. The only re uh, remaining question should then be, does T.D. Jake's believe in a oneness or Trinitarian view of God? Theologically untrained readers of Jakes's response to our article may have had their minds set at ease. In reality, Jakes said nothing to relieve their concerns. Yeah, Elliot Miller is going to go on here in just a minute to fully explain this. If you're not theologically trained, um, then what he said will put you at ease. But in reality, and, and I kind of hinted at this, you know, when you carefully read what he said, he said nothing that contradicts oneness teaching and nothing that affirms the, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. So Miller continues, he says, Christians should understand that there are two ways heretics can deny the Trinity. The first is to outright deny it, as do Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, and classic oneness Pentecostals. The second way is to claim that one believes in the Trinity while redefining it to mean something entirely different than what the church has historically believed, as do Mormons, Christian scientists, and the new breed of oneness Pentecostals that Jake apparently represents. It also needs to be pointed out that nothing Jake's said contradicts modalism or commits him to the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Theologians recognize two distinct conceptions of the Trinity. The ontological Trinity, which refers to the existence of the three distinct persons within the Godhead, apart from any relationship to the creation, and the economic Trinity, which refers to the distinct roles the three persons assume in relation to creation. 
Modalism essentially teaches that the economic trinity is the only trinity that there is. Their God, who ontologically is not triune, assumes three distinct modes or roles in relation to creation. They are convinced that to confess God in three persons is to confess the existence of three gods, even though that's not what the doctrine of the Trinity states. This is their main stumbling block in approaching orthodoxy. In his rebuttal, T.D. Jakes never affirms an ontological trinity, but only an economic one. He speaks of different functions the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit perform, but then he clarifies that he does not believe in three gods, by which it's fairly clear that he means persons. Even the illustration of the H2O taking the form of ice, water, and steam says nothing about three persons, only three manifestations, and is in fact a common illustration used by modalists to explain their view. The key tip-off that Jakes is a dyed-in-the-wool modalist is his unwavering insistence both before our article was published and even in response to our article to use the word manifestations rather than persons in regard to the Trinity. Sibelius consistently avoided the use of the term persons, or the Greek word hypostasis, in favor of the term manifestations. Uh, Louis Burkhoff explains that, quote, he distinguished between the unity of the divine essence and the plurality of its manifestations. According to him, the names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are simply designations of three different phases under which the one divine essence manifests itself. God reveals himself as Father in creation and in the giving of the law, as Son in the incarnation, and as Holy Spirit in regeneration and sanctification. By contrast, oneness Pentecostalism is, is a form of simultaneous modalism that, unlike Sabellianism, regards all three manifestations as present at the same time, not in successive revelatory periods. Hence, Jakes is able to affirm the coexistence of the Father, Son, and Spirit without in any way betraying his oneness allegiances. When Jakes cites 1 Timothy 3.16, he mistakenly cited 3.15 to justify his use of the term manifestations, he simply falls back on the classic proof text oneness Pentecostals have always used to argue for their view as the Dictionary of Pentecostal and Charismatic charismatic movements explains the threefold divine reality is defined as three manifestations of the one spirit in the person of jesus taken from the christological hymn in first timothy 3:16. the term manifestation bars the threeness from god's nature and restricts it to his uh, to his self-revelation as a form of modalism. It preserves the radical monarchy of God and affirms uh, the triune revelation. And by the way, 1 Timothy 3.16 says this, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Actually, all of the passage... All of the passages Jake's cites that use the term manifestation refer to the incarnation of Christ, the manifestation of the second person of the Trinity in human form. 
with one exception. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, which speaks of the manifestation of the Spirit, that is, the charismatic gifts. None of them are concerned with the doctrine of the Trinity per se, and therefore they do not use the word manifestations in the same way that Jake's and oneness teachers use it. In light of all this, it's hard to believe uh, Jake's when he says that the language in his ministry's doctrinal statement does not derive from modalism. If, in fact, he believes in the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, then he can clear this controversy up and satisfy all Trinitarians by simply affirming in his doctrinal statement and in all of his ministry's teaching that not only does he believe in the Trinity, but he also believes the Trinity comprises three eternally distinct persons who together are the one and only Almighty God. If he cannot bring himself to do that and yet still insists that he holds to the Trinity, then evangelicals should understand that it is he and not his critics who uses clever semantics to obfuscate the truth. Indeed, if he is so intent on holding to modalism because he believes it is the truth, to be consistently truthful, he should openly identify himself as a modalist. Then, as the price of his convictions, he should willingly relinquish, uh, relinquish all any claim to leadership in the contemporary evangelical church where belief in the Trinity, properly defined, is not and should never be considered optional. Jakes's sentiments that there are a few things I would die for, a few more I would argue strongly, after that I'm too busy trying to preach the gospel to split hairs, would be admirable if only he correctly identified the things for which it's worth dying. The courageous church father, Athanasius, would have certainly advised him that the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those things, since he fought against seemingly the entire world to establish it permanently in the church. Thanks in no small part to his efforts, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints has been preserved for the last 16 centuries so that untold billions of souls could believe unto salvation. In our own generation, contrary to Jake's, many are dying without knowing God, not only for lack of love, but also for lack of theology, the essential doctrine of the Christian faith that are inseparable from the gospel of salvation. the essential doctrines of the Christian faith that are inseparable from the gospel of salvation. That was written by Elliot Miller in response to T.D. Jakes's um, response. Yeah, the point is this. Nothing that T.D. Jakes said in his response actually is, when you push on the definitions, has anything to do with the biblical historic doctrine of the Trinity. And in fact, everything he said is still completely 100% compatible with uh, modalism. And um, I, I, with Elliot Miller, think that there's a reason why he engaged in that obfuscation, uh, because there would be a, a pretty big price to pay if he openly came out and said that he was a modalist. But everything he says, when you push on the theological and doctrinal definitions, still falls into historic Sabalian modalism. So that's the thing. Now, again, um, despite James McDonald's bristling at the concept of using a creed, which he doesn't seem to be all that in favor of, um, it, the, the only way I would ever believe that T.D. Jakes is truly a Trinitarian is if he unequivocally signed on to the Athanasian Creed and says and said that that is what 
he believes regarding the Godhead. Plain and simple. That creed was formulated by the church, you know, more than a millennia ago for a reason. It was formulated in order to help identify heretics and to help teach the truth. So, yeah, when you think when you think of the creeds, I think a good way to think of it is this, although I don't particularly like the metaphor for one one reason, but uh, when we we all know the story of Superman, that Superman, you know, that his superpowers disappear as soon as uh, he is in the presence of kryptonite. Uh, that would be, uh, you know, pieces, uh, chunks of his home planet of Krypton that have fallen to Earth. Um, see, uh, for a heretic, they're not superheroes. They're they're heretics. Um, but uh, you know, they 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 lose their heretical powers in the presence of clear, concise, well formulated historical creeds, and that's why they bristle against them because doctrine divides it divides light from darkness truth from error true christians from false christians heretics from sound proclaimers of the biblical doctrines found in the scriptures so yeah doctrine does divide that's what it's supposed to do because we're not supposed to be in fellowship with people who are heretics and wolves who are denying and changing uh, the uh, the doctrines of the Scripture and uh, believing what they want rather than what God has revealed. Okay, we are long uh, past uh, time for our first break, but uh, when we come back, we'll be uh, looking at uh, kind of the latest round in this. Uh, Carl Truman uh, weighing in regarding James McDonald's actions. You're not going to want to miss this. Uh, we'll be right back. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> sir can i help you yes do you have a copy of 30 days in the desert to learn your purpose and to cast the vision to the ignorant masses by s furtick qwz uh well i don't know the book sir uh, never mind never mind how about 101 ways to build a mega church and make big bucks i well some american gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment i believe his last name rhymes with shin uh no well we haven't gotten in stock sir <sighs> oh well not to worry not to worry can you help me with the screw tape letters ah yes c.s lewis no I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. <laughs> 
the screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity, it's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh- quite sure? Quite. Hmm. Not worth just looking. Definitely not. All right. How about The Great Divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E, Divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. He actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-L-P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. Mm, the Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. <sighs> Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Perilandra. No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. And perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent But Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity. That's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I I did. They sent me here. Did they? I I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No. Don't have that funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here. Thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't. No, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, it's one o'clock. We're closing for lunch. I, I saw it. I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S. Yes. M-A-Y-E-R. Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated the version. The expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. Right, the Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Ah, oh, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. <laughs> I-, I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. You've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, what, what? what? Yeah, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two... Yes! We got it! I see it somewhere! Yes! I found it! It's here! Got it! Yes! Here we are! Martin Chemnitz's Two Natures in Christ! There's your book! Now buy it! I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit! I, I don't have any money! I'll take a check! I, I don't have a checkbook! I got a blank one! I don't have a bank account! Right! I'll buy it for you! There we are! There's changes some money for a taxi on the wait, way home! There's wait! Your... Wait! 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 What? 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 I can't read! You can't! Read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter one. 
Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, believing in modalism means that you believe in a false god. It actually damns you because you're not believing in the god who's revealed himself in scripture. It's an idol. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our um, uh, website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can uh, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, uh, in kind of, you know, in, in response to what's going on with the T.D. Jakes thing, I think it's rather interesting. Carl Truman uh, has weighed in uh, at his Reformation 21 blog uh, regarding a, rec a rhetorical trick uh, played by um, some of the folks um, that are part of the Elephant in the Room conference. Uh, the name of the blog post is Le Orthodoxie C'est Moi. Uh, that's about as good as I can do on the French thing. But anyway, uh, Carl writes, he says, In reflecting further on the issue of accountability, I have noticed a rhetorical trick played by some of the fellows who have caused controversy recently. If you look at Furtick's, that Stephen Furtick's, Hey Haters, or James McDonald's Elephant Room 1 video, the most noticeable thing after the powerful aesthetics is the practice of attack being the best form of defense. By characterizing criticism in advance as driven by hate or sectarianism, they effectively make it impossible or at least very difficult for anyone to raise any concerns. They also engage in remarkable feats of clairvoyance concerning the future motivation of anyone not convinced by their arguments or actions. I've also found, watching and reading other material that such figures produce, that one is never very far away from two other claims. First, 
that the critics are small church guys having a, a pop at big church guys, the implication being that the motivation is envy or even hate. Such may be the case with individuals, but the Bible nowhere says that the successful should only answer to the successful. Indeed, 1 Corinthians makes it very clear that whatever else it is, success by itself is utterly irrelevant as a criterion for judging fidelity to Christ. Second, they often make the point that Jesus was controversial when he was criticized, as if this too sanctified their actions. That That's a non-secular. Uh, from saints to serial killers, many people have their critics. It's not the fact of criticism, but the content of criticism that is important. I have no problem with mixed platforms. I appeared in discussions with atheists, with Roman Catholics, and even a female gladiator from the British TV series of the same name. But when one claims, as James McDonald does for The Elephant in the Room, that this is a context where he gets, quote, brothers together who believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, but normally don't interact, he's making a strong doctrinal claim for the orthodoxy of the men he has invited and the significance of appearing on his show. Further, by preempting criticism as discernmentalism, yeah, that's that's the new term, it's not... It's, yeah, you, you, it's the new pejorative term. It's it, By the way, this is a, an ad hominem attack. Oh, yeah, Chris Roseborough, he's just a discernmentalist. Yeah, and, and yeah, heavy on the mental, apparently. Anyway, Carl Truman points out, he says, by preempting criticism as, as discernmentalism, McDonald is in effect saying, in a manner ref, reminiscent of Charles de Gaulle speaking of France, les orthodoxies, c'est moi. This is further confirmed by his dismissal of Nicene Orthodoxy as non-essential. That, that latter is, of course, about as sectarian of a move as one could make. Orthodoxy becomes what these men decided is, and the rest of us can get with the program or get out of the way. I have no connection to either man. They have no relevance for me at all. I simply use them as examples of how independent maverick pastors can end up trying to punch above their weight and speak for the whole church. It would be interesting to see if those who do have such connections will step up to address the issue of accountability in these cases. Church history from Paul onwards teaches that the faith cannot be maintained simply by making general positive statements of doctrinal positions. It can only survive when those crossing the line are called out by name and, if necessary, shown the door. Silence is golden in many cases, but not when it comes to speaking the truth. After a while, that silence becomes deafeningly eloquent. Great points by uh, Carl Truman. And... <laughs> eloquently said, too, and I, I appreciate his uh, contribution here. Now, not to beat a dead horse, but uh, uh, the highway to hell thing, I think this will be the last thing that we discuss, uh, the last time I discuss the highway to hell thing, but Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog has weighed in on this, and he has a blog post on at teampyro.blogspot.com entitled Highway to Hell, and I'm not going to replay Perry Noble's uh, statements. You, I've played them twice here on the program. If you're if you're not familiar with them, you need to go back into the archives of Fighting for the Faith and listen to them yourselves. Uh, but 
Um, he, Phil Johnson has a, a different take regarding this, not just not, really neither here nor there regarding whether or not you can harmonize the uh, statements. Here's what uh, Phil Johnson says. In, I posted a couple links in my Twitter feed last week, and, I vig and a vigorous discussion ensued because the controversy surrounding the following video clips deals with fundamental matters of ministry philosophy, pastoral propriety, and purity of the church, and the difference between two, uh, true worship and strange fire. And since Twitter is a 140-character limit simply isn't enough to let me even begin to say what I think needs to be said about this, I decided to take it upon the blog today. So he says, first watch this. So this, the first one is where Perry Noble basically says he was working out and trying to figure out a way to <clears throat> tick off religious people, and, and Highway to Hell came on his iPod, and he thought, that'll do it. That's what he says. And then he goes on to explain how, uh, you know, that he received email from religious people afterwards. He said, I can't believe anything that song in church. And then at the Elephant in the Room conference, just mere days later, uh, Perry said, oh, it's not like we try to figure out how we can upset religious people. And um, he, that's not the word he used, but and, and, and that high would a hell, that'll do it. I'm mean, two statements that just factually you can't jive. Well, James McDonald wrote a, a blog post called Perry Noble Didn't Lie. And then uh, what happens is that uh, that uh, Phil Johnson links to that. Now here's his here's his response. This is his take on this whole thing. He says, "I lost count of the number of people who wrote, tweeted, or commented on my Facebook page last week in order to ask for a candid response to all this." So here's a random sampling of my thoughts. Number one, I don't know, or nor do I care, if Perry Noble is lying in that second clip. He could indeed merely be making. The argument that the first clip doesn't actually tell the full story, I wouldn't and didn't accuse him of lying. So, for for uh, for Phil Johnson, the the lying is kind of like the least of it, and he doesn't really care. Next, frankly, whether he lied or not strikes me as the most trivial of all trivial of all questions. Those two video clips raise. Stop and listen to what Perry Noble is saying. If indeed he's telling the truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth. The admission he makes in that first video is every bit as ugly and outrageous as a lie. Here's a man who is supposed to be a shepherd of the flock of God, arrogantly boasting that he looks for ways to anger and offend Christians who are more conservative than he is. He hits on a particularly offensive idea. In this case, it's a stunt so carnal he doesn't even bar bother to argue that it has any redeeming spiritual value. Then he and his elders, quote, pray together to seek the Lord's direction about it and decide to go ahead and do it. Yikes. If that doesn't offend every synapse in your brain, you must be devoid of love for Christ's church. Next. If James McDonald thinks the big problem with Noble's statement was the contradiction, and if he he is more troubled by the critic's tone than he is by Perry Noble's swaggering self-congratulation, the McDonald is not going to be a very helpful mentor to Perry Noble. Next, I'll say it again. The public mentoring of bad boy pastors by men who have earned a degree of respectability is a is a really bad idea. If you're a famous pastor who truly wants to be a help to a young, foul-mouthed, narcissistic rock star pastor, 
it would be better to do it privately and withhold your public affirmations of the punk pastor until he gains enough maturity to actually meet the biblical requirements for eldership. Next, several people on Twitter and Facebook suggested that Perry Noble lied. The accusation is the exact equivalent of the agnostics charge that the New Testament contradicts itself. James McDonald likewise strongly hinted at that argument, likening the two video clips uh, above to many passages of Scripture that need to be reconciled. Seriously? Am I the only one who thinks it cheapens the authority of Scripture to suggest that a harmony of Matthew 28.10 and Luke 24.49 is a problem of the same order as the question as to whether or not Perry Noble sits around trying to, quote, tick off people or not? All the wordplay and energy that has been put into defending Noble feels like a bad caricature concocted to demonstrate everything that's wrong with postmodernism. Someone who raises no objection when an egomaniacal pastor boasts about looking for ways to offend and irritate other Christians has no moral ground to complain about the tone or biases of those who are offended. But the postmodernist spends hours attacking them anyway, exegeting the mischief-loving fellow's braggadocio, making useless arguments about words in order to defend the honor of the guy who admitted that from the very start his main intention was to offend. What we have here is proof of how pathological the cults of personality among the young evangelicals has become. Finally, for those working so hard to reconcile Perry Noble, the Perry Noble of the Elephant Room with the self-satisfied scoundrel in the first video above, here's the question you need to ask yourself. Once we have reconciled the statements made in both clips, what kind of fruit are we left with? Yep, yeah, I think Phil Johnson hit it out of the park with that. Great point. Yeah, since when did it become even remotely acceptable in the in the Christian church that a man who is a pastor and it's not just that Perry Noble is a pastor Perry Noble markets himself as a mentor to other pastors he pastors he's a pastor to pastors when did it become acceptable that it's okay to set about purposely to tick off that's not his, the phrase he used. He used one stronger. To tick off religious people, to tick off other Christians by bringing something as carnal and base and satanic as ACDC's Highway to Hell to launch your Easter service with it. Yeah, what's the fruit that's left here? This isn't, this is not what biblical, this, this is not what Christian pastors are to be doing. The Bible absolutely forbids this. It falls under the general category of a pastor or an elder must be above reproach. Perry Noble hasn't even begun to approach that biblical standard for men who are in pulpit ministry. All right, uh, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to be going to Las Vegas and uh, listening to uh, another Vince Antonucci sermon from The Verb there in Las Vegas, basically asking the question, what if God is not mad? Anyway, so if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. 
It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebrough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we are back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Going to be heading back to Las Vegas. Remember sending out a tweet with a link to uh, Vince Antonucci's blog. The tweet basically said if uh, your pastor was moonlighting at a comedy show that was canceled by a casino for being too obscene, uh, then he might be a wolf. Yeah, that happened. We covered it here at Fighting for the Faith. Talked about it. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Verve in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, Vince Antonucci presiding. I can't bring myself to calling this guy a pastor anymore. The, uh, the name of the sermon series is X Factor. The name of this particular sermon is What If God Isn't Mad? We're going to be doing some comparative work to see if the gospel that he's preaching, there's supposedly good news in this sermon, if the good news that's presented in the sermon by this so-called Christian pastor is actually the biblical good news that rightly handles God's word and tells the people in, that showed up for the event at this place called The Verve if uh, what they're really hearing is um, the truth regarding Jesus Christ, what he's done, their standing before God, and how they uh, can be saved questionable as to whether or not they even need to be saved. Well, I mean, what if God isn't mad? So let me kill the music. Without any further ado, here is uh, Vince Antonucci uh, and his um, sermon, What If God Isn't Mad? Here we go. (laughs) 
Tate, who tuned in to the Bird Podcast live from the heart of Las Vegas, Nevada. Thanks for listening, and we will have was October 6, 2002. It, it was a, a, a nice fall day, and um, 11-year-old Sean Hornbeck decided to take his bike and ride around the neighborhood, and then he vanished. It, it was believed that maybe he was killed, probably kidnapped, disappeared. And, and after his disappearance, his parents uh, started looking for him. And then they got the police to start searching for him. And, and then they actually uh, ended up eventually going through their entire life savings looking for him and uh, paying people to look for him. They quit their jobs so they could search full time. And, uh, and eventually, after four years of searching, they gave up hope. And I want to tell you the rest of that story, but, but let's do it in a little bit. Uh, first, let me tell you about the new series we're starting today. It's called uh, The X Factor. We do series here uh, a couple weeks. We'll stay with a certain theme. This series is only two weeks long. So if you come back next week, you were at an entire series. Nice. And, uh, and this series is called The X Factor. The, the TV show starts on Wednesday night. Anybody plan on just checking it out, seeing if it's any good? Anybody? Yes, some of you, yes. Uh, I, I am. I want to see it because the commercials look, make it look like 80% American Idol and 20% Jerry Springer. And I'm thinking that's an entertaining mix, so we'll check it out and see. Uh, but the idea of the X factor is that there is a certain uh, intangible, uh, almost undefinable quality that some people have, that some singers have. It's, it's the quality that makes them into a star. It's that factor in them that, that makes you want to buy their CDs and go to their concerts. It's, it's hard to define, but it's the X factor. What I've discovered is that the X factor is not just something that singers have. It's also true of some people. You know, most people that you meet are most people that you meet. You know what I mean? They're, yeah, there's another person, right? But every once in a while, you meet a person, and there's something about them. And it is, it's kind of an intangible thing. It's hard to define. It, it might be their energy, um, or it might be the, their joy, or, or this peace that just they kind of have, or, or it could be their passion. I don't know. It, it might just be the gleam in their eye that, that kind of catches your attention. Or, or it could be the way they, they listen and seem to really care, or, or, or their laugh. But there's something about them that you're like, man, they've got something. Like, like they're, they're different. And whatever they have, now I want it. It's that the X factor. You can't define it, but you know it when you see it. What also may be true for a lot of us is we know what it is, and we know we can't define it, but we see it, and we also know that we don't have it. We, we can tell that whatever that is, now I don't have it. It's like it's, there's like this thing, this it that, that I'm missing. And it kind of is a bad place to be, you know, to realize that there's something out there, but I lack it. And I long for it, but I don't have it. It's like, it's out there. It happens. It's just not happening in me, to me, for me. So what is it? What is it? Well, I'll tell you what what I think. I've met quite a few people who have it, who is just like, man, that person, wow. Apparently, I don't know what any of this has to do with the Bible. So apparently somebody has it, whatever it is. They have it. Okay. What does this have to do with the Bible? I'm just curious. 
And every person I've met who has it, when I kind of explore and figure the person out, what they have is a real, authentic, deep relationship with God. Now, I know. Some of you are rolling your eyes because it's like, well, of course you're going to say that we're in church and you're a pastor and that's what you're supposed to, of course that's what it's going to be in church. Man, I really believe it's true. And I would challenge you, you know, find some people who have that. I think that's what you'll find. They have this relationship with God that kind of gives them this foundation in life that a lot of us are missing. And it gives them this, it's almost like they have a well to draw from that that some of us don't have, you know? It, It gives them this, the spiritual dimension of life that they were made for, and so they're not lacking that, and, and it gets them through hard times. Mean, it, it's this real, authentic, deep relationship with God. I think that's the X factor. Now, now let's just be clear. It's not going to church. Now, I'm not saying going to church is the X factor. Now, people who have a real, authentic, deep relationship with God, they tend to go to church, but there are a lot of people who go to church and don't have it. Okay? It's also not saying that you're a Christian. And these people might say they're a Christian, but, but there are a lot of people who would say they're a Christian. And they don't have it. They don't have a real authentic, deep relationship with God. It's not living by the Ten Commandments. It's not uh, acting polite and dressing right because I grew up in a Christian home. And I know, you know it's not that. I'm talking about somebody I'm way beyond that. I'm talking about having a real, authentic, deep relationship with God. I think that's it. Like, um, like football season started last week, which is awesome. And... Uh, and there's a, a player, Tim Tebow. He was a really successful quarterback in college at Florida. And now he's on the Denver Broncos, who I hate with an ungodly passion. Did I see the singer today, Zach, wearing a Denver Because that's not cool. But go Raiders. Anybody with me? No? All right. There's one of us. Okay. Uh, anyway, Tim Tebow uh, is now in the pros. And all the football an- an- analysts believe that he will not make it as a pro. And, and you'll, uh, they'll talk about his throwing motion. He throws from his elbow instead of his shoulder. And he's not accurate enough. But here's the really weird thing. I, I watch a lot of ESPN and shows like that. And, uh, and whenever these analysts talk about Tim Tebow, they always say, oh, he's got no chance. He, his throwing motion is all jacked up. And, and, and he's not accurate enough for the NFL. And, and then they'll say this. They'll say, now he's an incredible person. Like, I've spent time with him. He's amazing. Like, he, he might be the most amazing person I've ever met. So this isn't personal, but he's never going to make it as a pro. That's weird. And football analysts all the time talk bad about players' skills. He didn't have strong enough legs. He's this, he's that. But they never stop and say, now he's an amazing person. Like, that guy is a person. He's they never say that. Why would Tim Tebow? Well, you look into his life and you find out he has a real, authentic, deep relationship with God. And I think that's it, man. That's the X factor. Now, here's the, here's the good news. Here's the cool thing. You can have it. This mysterious it that maybe you've lost. So the reason why you should become a Christian is so that you can be like Tim Tebow, uh, Tebow or have it, whatever it is. I'm not sure what it is. Um, could you show us any Bible verses that talk about this it thing? Long for, maybe you can't define it. You can have it. You, you can. And how cool would that be? Like, like, seriously, how cool would it be to be the person who has that, that foundation in life that kind of keeps you solid, to, that has the, the water, the, the deep well to draw from that other people may not have, to, to, to kind of have that peace and that joy, that energy, that passion. How cool would it be to have that, to be the kind of person that, that when other people spend time with you, they're like, man, 
I don't know what you have, but I want it. Like, you're, there's something about you. You're not like everybody else. Be pretty cool, right? You can have it. You can have it. Now, uh, here's the reality. There are some things that will hold us back from getting it, from experiencing and living out this, this X factor. Okay, so the, the thing I want is the X factor, but there's things that can hold me back from getting it. Yeah, I don't recall this being taught in the Bible. Um, you got any verses for this, or are you just making this up, um, uh, Vince? There are some things that hold us back, and what we're going to talk about in the series are two of the key things, two of the critical things that I think hold many people back from ever having this, this it, this X factor. Today, we're going to look at this idea that a lot of us think we can't have it because God must be mad at me. I've sinned, I've blown it, I've uh, screwed up, and and God has to be angry. And and so there's no way I can have a deep, authentic relationship with God. Some people, it keeps them from ever going to church, from ever becoming a Christian kind of deal. Uh, Other people might say, no, I I mean, I I have a relationship with God, I guess, and I accepted Jesus, and I'm a Christian and all that. But but still, this plagues them. They find it difficult to pray because I know what I did yesterday and I don't know if I should like go to God. And they have this thing, God must be mad. And it keeps them from a deep, authentic relationship with God. Do you know that this idea, which by the way, I'm going to prove to you is wrong. Okay, Today, I will actually prove to you that this idea is not true. But, but this idea has been around forever. It's been around forever. Like um, the opening story of the Bible in the book of Genesis is the story of Adam and Eve. And uh, in the story, Adam and Eve have this relationship with God, but then uh, they kind of turn their backs on him and, and they sin. They, they, they kind of violate his, the one rule he gave them. They sin against him. And you know what? Kind of violate. Already we're hedging on the definition of sin. What they do next? They go into hiding. Why? Because God must be mad. And so we're going to hide from him. And listen, whether you accept that story as literally true, historically true, or even if you just think, I I think it's more of like a a legend that's designed to teach us a lesson, however you look at it, still, the lesson we learn from this story is that God's not mad. Because what God does is they hide, and then God seeks. God reestablishes contact. God reestablishes the relationship. Okay, this is an example of, of like telling one part of the Bible and excluding other data that might mess up what you're trying to say, okay? Let's let's just challenge this with this idea that the Bible interprets the Bible. The, the, the phrase that uh, theologians use is Scripture interprets Scripture. That's the phrase. And so let's take a look at a couple of passages of Scripture that I think might have something to say about this. We'll begin with the um, the less important one and go to the important one. So we're going to do this backwards. We're going to we're going to argue from the one. Well, they're all important, but what I mean by this is that um, we're going to be arguing from uh, not my strongest card first. We're going to play the weaker card first, and then we'll play the stronger card. That's probably the better way of putting it. Here's what we're going to look at: Ephesians chapter two. Verse 1, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church churches in Ephesus, to the Christians there, 
reminding them of the gospel, if he would. And he says to them, verse 1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So here God's wrath is mentioned rather clearly. I I would hate to quibble over words, and I'm sure somebody might try to do it, but wrath and, and anger, wrath and being mad, um, they, they, those are kind of same similar concepts, if you would. Okay, now let me read to you the, the more important card. John chapter 3, starting at verse 16. Jesus speaking. These are red letters. Not that they, not that the the that Bible passages that don't have red letters are not authoritative. I just find it fun to put Jesus in front of people and basically say, "So you're going to contradict him directly?" People seem to think that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired all of the scriptures. Okay, they seem to think that. Uh, they seem to forget that that very fact. But the reality here is, is that uh, this is Jesus speaking red letters. Um, and uh, here's what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And then John says at the end of the chapter, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe, obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So going to, so here's the idea is, is that um, you'll notice what he's doing here. He's going to a narrative text and basically coming up with his own theological conclusions from the text. And the idea is, is that the Bible has many different types of um uh, it has many 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 different types of genre if you would and so the, the the tricky part is this is that it sometimes the theological conclusions of a historical narrative text are not as easy to draw directly and we rely upon other passages that tell us the theology of those historical narratives for us for instance um all four of the uh, the gospel writers record for us that Jesus Christ was crucified, that Pontius Pilate was the one who ultimately gave the order for Jesus to be executed, and that he was crucified. So they record Jesus' suffering, his beating, his death, his scourging, his the hands and feet being pierced, and ultimately him dying a very, very painful and shameful death. Okay. That being the case... Um, what does it all theologically mean? What are the theological implications of Jesus' crucifixion? 
where do we go to find that? Well, we have to go to the passages that discuss Jesus' death and tell us what that means. Because if we were just there as a, you know, maybe a film crew, you know, historically recording Jesus' crucifixion, at the end of it, we'd have video of the event. But the question is, what is the theological significance of that? In order to find the theological significance, we have to go to the biblical passages that God the Holy Spirit has inspired to be written, to give us the theological implications of Jesus' crucifixion. So what Vince Antonucci here is he's going to a historical narrative text, and he's making his own theological conclusions, rather than going to the other passages in the scripture that lay out the theology of what's going on in this historical narrative. What happened? So he's saying, look, God went chasing after them. See that? So God's not mad at you. Yeah, well, you can only make that statement if you ignore the other passages that says that if you do not believe in the Son of God, then the wrath of God remains on you, or that by nature we are all objects of God's wrath. You see, there's just two clear passages that just completely destroy what he's saying. But the technique he's using is going to a historical narrative and writing his own theology rather than letting the theological conclusions of that of that story from other passages uh, seep in. You know, I'll give you some more in a minute, but let's hear some more of Vince Antonucci. It turns out God's not mad. And, and then you start going through the, the rest of the Old Testament. And, and what happens is time after time after time, the people who are supposed to be like God's people, the people who are supposed to believe in God and live for God, they will turn their backs on him and they walk away from him and they end up sinning against him and, and they make a mess of things. And then they get to this point where they think, man, we've blown our chance with God. Like, like whatever chance we had to have a relationship with God, it's gone now. Like we ruined that. Uh, really, you got any passages where the children of Israel said any of that? In fact, it's quite the opposite. God, despite their continual sin and idolatry, sent prophets to call them to repentance over and over again. Never did the children of Israel go, oh, well, I guess we blew it with God. I guess it's all, you know, oh, well, what are we going to do? You know, uh, but that's okay. You know, God comes to the rest and says, don't worry, I'm not mad. There's no, there's no passages that say anything of the sort. Over and again, God sends his prophets calling Israel to repent of their idolatry and their sin and to be forgiven. And they continue to thumb their noses at God, to basically walk the other way. And ultimately, God says, you continue to do that, then I'm going to unleash all of the curses of the Mosaic law on you. And he does. That's how the stories go down in the Old Testament. So, um, yeah, I'm not familiar with the passage where the people, oh, I think we've blown our chances with God. Oh, eh. yeah, I don't see that as a major concern. What I, I mean, the closest you can come is like the story of Josiah, where uh, Josiah, uh, you know, they they are doing a, a temple refurbishment project, and they find the book of the law, they find the Torah, they find the the writings of Moses you know, somewhere there in the temple and they open it up and they read it and they go, <gasps> we're in trouble. Oh man, we are in a lot of trouble. So, you know, <laughs> just, you know, they realize just how much trouble they're in. And, and what ends up happening is, is that Josiah is looking for a prophet, somebody he can inquire of the Lord to, and he finds a, a prophetess and the prophetess note makes, an, you know, God speaks to the prophetess and has the prophetess tell the king 
that uh, because he had humbled himself, torn his clothes and stuff like that, that all of the curses that are there you know, laid out in the law will not fall on him but his children. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I again, I'm not really all that familiar with the, the, the way the, the, the Bible that he's describing because what he's describing really isn't in the Bible at all. And what happens is time and time and time again, God pursues his people and he reestablishes contact and he reengages in that relationship. And we discover that God's not mad. Then you get to the New Testament, which is where Jesus shows up. And Jesus uh, is... Uh, You know, Vince, if God's not mad, then why the passages that clearly say that uh, we are by nature children of God's wrath? Hmm? Why does, you know, why does Jesus say that, um, you know, that, you know, that if you do not believe, you stand condemned already? Why does John say that if you do not believe, then the wrath of God remains on you? Why? Doesn't it bother you that what you're saying is flat out contradicted by the clear teachings of God's word? Is uh, God come down to earth in the person of God's son. Uh, God kind of puts on human flesh and he lives as a human being amongst us for about 33 years. And, and as a person, uh, Jesus hangs out with people. He, he makes friends. But what's fascinating is who he makes friends with. Because Jesus would travel around from, from town to town and in every town he went to, he would end up making friends with the people who were considered the most sinful. The people that everyone kind of pointed at and whispered about and talked about what they did last night and that kind of thing, those were the people that Jesus hung out with. The people who thought, man, the life I'm living, God must be mad at me. But here's God come down in the flesh, and who does he choose to be friends with? Who does he choose to hang out with? But exactly those people. Yeah, um, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. The correct way to understand this is that we as a species, as a you know, as human beings, have rebelled against God and are by nature objects of his wrath, but God, in his love, por- pursues us. So both his love and his wrath are true. You're cutting, you're basically cutting the tension that God has created in his word. Because every single one of us knows, because the law is written on our hearts, every single one of us knows in our hearts that there is a God and that what we've done against God, it deserves his wrath. Because the law is written on our hearts, Romans uh, chapter 1 says, it's very clear. So we have God's law accusing us and uh, God's law telling us that we are condemned. God's law telling us that we deserve his justice. God's law in our hearts telling us that uh, we, we are in trouble, deep kimchi. That's true. That we are by nature objects of God's wrath. Fallen in Adam is absolutely true. What what does Romans chapter 5 say? Uh, Here's what uh, Romans chapter 5 says. Therefore, just as sin, this is verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one 
who was to come. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment followed one trespass, brought condemnation, uh, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The idea is this, that God's wrath and his love are both true. God is angry at sin. If he didn't think he was angry at sin, then why was Jesus suffering so badly on the cross? He was taking our punishment upon himself. That's what Isaiah 53 says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. If you want to... I mean, you want you can't say God wasn't mad because if he wasn't mad, then why did Jesus suffer so badly? Why did God the Father turn his back on Jesus? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's love and his wrath are both true. Here, Vince is cutting the cord between those two, and now the gospel is not going to make any sense as a result of this. There's uh, one point. It's, it's almost humorous. In Luke chapter 7, verse 34, you can look it up later if you want. Um, Luke seven thirty-four. 34, uh, they're telling stories of Jesus' life. And, and in that verse, Jesus is called a friend of sinners. Now, what's funny about that is that the religious people, the, the holier-than-thou types, said it as an insult. They're like, oh, he's a friend of sinners. Well, like they were putting him down when, yeah, that's exactly what he was. But they didn't understand. They were like, holy people are supposed to hang out with holy people. If he's holy, he should hang out with us. But he wouldn't hang out with them. He always hung out with with the people that they looked down on. What's interesting is uh, what the very next thing in that chapter uh, is that these righteous, holy people who who had this disdain for who Jesus was hanging out with, they invite Jesus to hang out with them. They invite him to a dinner party. It's almost like... Uh, they were thinking, you know what? You haven't figured this out. Like you're supposed to be holy, but you don't get it that you're supposed to hang out with holy people. So we'll help you by inviting you over to our house so you could not be with them. And so Jesus accepts the invitation. He goes to dinner. But then in the middle of dinner, the town prostitute comes bursting into the house to show her appreciation for Jesus. It's like, and the reason? Because... In Jesus, she had learned God's not mad. God's not mad. Jesus. Uh, no, actually, that's not the gospel. The gospel, the good news is not that God is not mad. He is. Because the text I've read, the text I've read say that if you don't believe, the wrath of God remains on you. It's that Christ, by his shed blood on the cross, propitiates the wrath of God. That the the good news for the prostitute is the same good news that you and I get to hear. Your sins are forgiven. Your debt is paid in full. The good news is not the announcement that God is not mad at you. The good news is the announcement is that God's wrath has been propitiated by the shed blood of Christ. 
It's, the biblical gospel is very different than the gospel you're telling here, Vince. This was God come down to earth, and he hung out with the people you would assume God would be mad at. And then Jesus hung on a cross for the people you'd assume God would be mad at. You want to explain what he was doing on the cross, please? You know, uh, Jesus went to the cross, and this is where it gets ridiculous, because if if you're the kind of person who thinks uh, that God is mad at you, and you sin, and you you have no chance with God, you have to answer the question then, well, what's the deal with Jesus going to the cross? Please, I can't wait to hear your explanation, because at this point, um, if you say that Jesus was punished for our sins and propitiated the wrath of God, then you have some explaining to do. Like, why did he do it and who did he do it for? Let me show you a couple of verses in the Bible um, that speak to this. So uh, we'll put them up on the screen. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to, to these verses. If not, then, uh, man, we put the verses up on the screen so you're fine. And if you don't have an easy-to-read translation of the Bible, like at home, uh, we give them out for free gifts. So stop by the Velcro bar on the way out. There's no catch. You don't have to talk to anybody. Just grab a Bible. If you want to talk to somebody, you can. And, uh, and we'd love for you to have that Bible. So... Um, like in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it talks about why Jesus gave his life. Look at it on the screen. It says, I live, it says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So why did Jesus give up his life? Because of love. And then look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. We'll put it up on the screen. It says, this is how... God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so these verses say, man, it's love that sent Jesus to the earth. It's love that sent Jesus to the cross, God's son. And it says he did it for our sins. It does talk about our sins there. And, uh, and this is part of the problem that people have. Where- Notice that uh, he's, very, he's, he's like picking and choosing very carefully which passages he's bringing to bear that describe and explain what Jesus did on the cross. Um, <clears throat> let me read another one that uh, he kind of left out, but uh, that I think was is a little bit more helpful here. But now the righteousness of God, this is Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation by his blood. When you unpack that, you understand what's going on here. Uh, Hilasterion is the Greek word there for propitiation. It's, it's, It's a tough word because... Uh, it does. You can't figure out what it means just by sounding it out. Hilasterion. Yeah, no, nothing's coming to mind. But the idea is this: is that a, a hilasterion is something that ricochets off the wrath of God. You know, it ricochets God's wrath away. Give me an example of a hilasterion. Okay, um, 
think of uh, the children of Israel on the eve of the Passover. They're in Egypt, and God says that he's going to send the destroyer into Egypt and and kill all of the firstborn. But if he comes across a, a door, a house where the doorway has the blood of a lamb over the lentils, then the then the destroyer will pass over that house and go to the next house. Okay, otherwise the firstborn will die in every house unless there's blood on the on the doors. And so the blood of the lamb is a hilasterion. It's a propitiation. It ricochets the the destroyer off of that house and sends him down the line. That's the idea. It's, and so, um, yeah, it's funny that he kind of left that out. Um, hmm. Yeah. And uh, so, okay, let's see what he – okay. But he selectively handpicked two verses that talk about the blood of Christ. But then we got the whole Isaiah thing. Isaiah chapter 53. Let me, let me read some of that because many people refer to uh, the, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah as, uh, as, the fourth, as the fifth gospel writer because, I mean, this is such clear theological atonement uh, words regarding what Jesus did on the cross. It's, here's what it says. The prophet Isaiah prophesying about Jesus' suffering. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus' sufferings demonstrate God's wrath, God's anger, his justice. Jesus drank down the cup of the wrath of God down to the dregs, and he did it for you and he did it for me. And yes, Vince is right. He did it because he loves us. But notice how he's trying to carefully reconstruct the narrative here to get away from the wrath of God because his premise that he came up with all by himself is that God isn't mad. That's not true. God is. And Jesus suffered the wrath of God and propitiated the wrath of God for us by his blood. We continue. Where they start feeling like God has to be angry. You know, it it, it is true uh, that we've all sinned. And, And it is true that sin is an affront to God. Mm-hmm. Sin is yes. It's almost like like an attack in a sense on God. Okay, so it's an affront and an attack on God. Okay. Are you going to talk about the wrath of God? Uh, because God is against sin. God hates sin. Okay. All right. So he hates it. All right. But the reason, and maybe you've never thought about this, the reason God is against sin is because God is for us. Mm, you got any verses that say that? The reason God hates sin is because God loves us. And God knows that sin messes our lives up. Sin leads us to places that we don't want to be. And so, of course, God hates it because he loves us so much. He doesn't want us to mess up our lives. and end- does, does this feel like he's just making up his own theology? He's just winging it here, just, you know. And I don't, I don't hear him reading from any texts. End up in this wrong place. 
And so, yeah, God hates sin, but... Romans chapter 2, verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He loves us. And and it's this very idea, though, that God does indeed hate sin that really makes this whole thing like mind-bogglingly ridiculous. It it just makes it more amazing. Uh, Look at... Romans chapter 5. We'll put it on the screen for you. Oh, good, good. Okay, please, I hope that you're going to do something good here. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Uh-huh. What if, uh, Romans nine twenty two? what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Okay, I wonder if he's going to read that, you know, because, I mean, if he has to read a passage that mentions the wrath of God, it's going to completely um, destroy the illusion he's trying to create here. God isn't mad. For you. Um, verses 6 through 8. <laughs> See, <laughs> he's going to miss, he's going to, he's going to read Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Yet, if he were to read just one more verse, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So he's going to read 6 through 8 and just conveniently omit verse 9 that talks about the wrath of God. Vince, you're you're doing violence to the biblical text. Do you think God enjoys, uh, is is pleased with your twisting of his word? says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for, pause there. What's it going to say next? Why did Christ die? Christ died for the ungodly, people who are not like God, people who had messed up their lives. It says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died died for us right now explain it in light of verse 9 talking about saved by him from the wrath of god for while we were in verse 10 for while we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life read verse 9 it talks about the wrath of god You just said God's not mad. Well, then why does the wrath of God appear in the next verse, the one you're not reading? And then uh, look at the beginning of verse 10. It says, for if when we were God's... Did you see that? (laughs) This is cheating. Okay. He he reads verses 6, 7, and 8 and skips over 9 and wants the people to read verse 10. He's having them miss verse 9 because in verse 9 it talks about the wrath of God. And the point of this sermon is God is not mad at you. But then, see, the wrath of God is mentioned there in verse 9, and he's totally avoiding it like the plague. Again, watch what he does. He's just explained. I I backed this up far enough so that you can hear. He's reading verses 6, 7, and 8, doesn't read 9, and then continues by having people skip ahead to verse 10. Oh, for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. And then uh, look at the beginning of verse 10. It says, for... <laughs> Just skip over verse 9 that talks about the wrath of God. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Now, that's incredible. What it's saying is... No, what's, what's incredible is the exacto knife job you're doing here. I mean, you've just cut Romans chapter 5, verse 9 out of the Bible that talks about the wrath of God. And therefore, the gospel that you're proclaiming here sounds very close to the biblical gospel, but it's missing a key important element. God's justice and his wrath. That explains why Jesus suffered so bitterly on the cross. All of that's missing as a result of that this, this, this gospel is being emptied of the truth and a different truth is being poured into it, one that is not accurate. This is a different gospel. That because we've sinned and because our sin is like an attack on God, it's almost like we had put ourselves in the position of being God's enemies. But it was right then in the midst of our sin. When we almost like we had become God's enemies. That's what he said. We were at our worst when we were God's enemies. That's when God decided to make us right so that he could have that deep, authentic relationship with us. That's when God sent his only son, his son, to die for us. Yes, and explain what that means. Why did he have to die? You're just throwing the terms out. He died for us. Well, what does it mean? Why did Jesus have to die if God isn't mad? If God is wrathless, why did Jesus have to die? You left out verse 9 that talks about the wrath of God, that that's what we're being saved from. And as a result of this whole premise, the cross that you're describing doesn't make any sense. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to suffer so much? Man, think about that. I realize maybe some of you grew up in church and maybe you've heard this like a thousand times. I did not grow up in church. I haven't heard this a thousand times, but, uh, but, but some of you have, but, but really think about this. He sent his son. I've got a son. I've got one son. And, um, Man, I'll never forget the day that I discovered I was having a son. We had found out we were pregnant and we're very excited. But then we went in for our 20-week ultrasound. And that's the one where they tell you the gender of the baby. And so uh, they turn on the ultrasound machine. And right away from, like, the look, I'm no expert, but I'm looking, I'm like, uh-oh. Because I could see that the baby uh, was laying on his or her stomach, I thought. And then the nurse confirmed it. She said, I said, uh-oh. And she went, yeah. Uh, unless unless the baby moves, we're not going to be able to tell if it's a boy or a girl. I'm really sorry, but we'll give it a try. I said, okay. And, and so she starts doing the ultrasound, and she's measuring all the major organs and doing whatever they do, and the baby doesn't move. And she, finally she gets down around that area, baby doesn't move. And, and so she said, man, I'm so sorry, but, but we make a videotape for you so you can show your family. And so she puts in this VHS tape, and she says, okay, let's, so let's show the family what you got. And so she said, well, here's the head, and she wrote head on the screen. And she said, and here's the heart. Do you see it? You can kind of see it beating a little bit and, and she said and here's the arms and, and then she gets right to here and uh like this is the moment and still the baby's laying on his or her stomach and right i kid you not right when she puts the camera here the baby turns and goes boom like all his stuff his stuff right in the camera and i looked and she looked at me and i turned to my wife and i said honey we're having a porn star i'm sorry but that is what i said <laughs> it was like 
Is that really appropriate for a pastor in a sermon, supposedly, to open up God's Word? If Is that really an appropriate sermon illustration? That's just crass and wrong. Like, why now? He was like, I'm ready for my close-up. And so uh, it was pretty cool. So we found out we were having a son. I'm like, I'm having a son. I'm having a son. And so then uh, you go into this phase where you have to choose the name of your kid, because now you know if it's a boy or a girl, right? Which is exciting, because, like, you're having a son, and what is his name going to be? And, and so we came up with this huge list uh, of possible names, and then we started, I don't know if you guys have kids, if you did this or not, but we had certain tests that we put every name through to make sure that it was, like, an okay name. So, like, the first test is uh, if either of us ever knew someone who was, like, a total geek or an absolute jerk or the other person dated with that name, the name's out, right? It could be like the coolest name in the world, but if Jen used to date one or I knew one who ate worms, we're not calling them that, right? And so we crossed out some names. And, and then uh, the second test you apply is you find out what the names mean. And, and so you can get like these baby books and it tells you the definition of the names. Like the name I was all for was the name Cade, C-A-D-E, Cade. And, and like we were close to naming that from Jen, so we got to check. And so we look in the baby book and the word Cade means lump. From the Middle English, typically used to describe a person of lumpy stature. My wife was like, I'm not having a son named Lump. And so Cade was out. And then uh, you have to get to another test, which is how will kids pick on your son because of the name? And, and so we're going through the list. And like one, my other favorite name was Trajan. And my wife was like, uh-uh. Because high school come, Trajan, really? I don't think so. And so Trajan was out. And then I have this peculiar test. We had to say all the names in Pig Latin. Because I think that maybe someday the Pig Latin people are going to take over and we'll all be speaking Pig Latin. So I want to make sure it sounds okay. And that's just me. Um, but, but then you have to finally, you get the name real, the name's real narrow. And you have to play the, the name game with the names. Because you know someday your kid's going to be whatever age and they're going to learn the name game. And they're going to be saying the name game to each other. And, and you want to make sure there's no problems with a name game. So like uh, one of our names was Tyler. And so we played the name game. We said, okay, ready? So here's what our kid's going to do someday. Tyler, 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 Bobiler, Banana, Fana, Fofiler, Me, My, Momiler, Tyler. Works. That was safe. But that, the name game did eliminate some of our options. Uh, Mitch, Buck, and Fastard. Again, is this appropriate? Is this an appropriate sermon illustration for a Christian pastor to be using? This is just crass and wrong. <laughs> okay. And aside from that, he's also teaching a false gospel and twisting God's word and omitting texts that disagree with his theology. Okay, moving on. And so finally, we picked the name uh, Dawson. Great name, man. And, and we said, uh, and asked me the name, and, and I will never forget the day that he was born, uh, and I got to hold him. I was the first person to hold him, man. It's like my son. And I got to hold him, like, first. And um, now I have to tell you, uh, from that moment and over the next, like, days and weeks and months, um, like, I discovered emotions I didn't know I had. I discovered an ability to love someone I, I didn't know existed inside of me. Um, I tell people, and it's true, it was almost like there, there was a sense in which my world went from like black and white to color. I was like, oh, 
This is why people cry. <laughs> oh, no wonder people are like, you know, it was like, ah. Oh. It was just like amazing because I had a son. And, and that was just when he was born, man. I've now had 12 years with him. He's amazing. Like, he's my best friend. Easy. So imagine this, okay? Uh, let's, say, let, let's say when he was a, a baby. Uh, let's say, you know, he's a month or two old. Yeah, this sucks. The phone rings one night, and we answer it, and it's uh, a a person who tells us, uh, he says, hey, I don't know if anyone's explained this to you yet, but there's a judge in California who just uh, gave, finally gave the death penalty to Charles Manson for all his many crimes. He's going to be electrocuted in his own cell next week. We say, okay, that's fine, yeah, okay. And he says, well, wait, wait. Um, this is very peculiar, but the judge has allowed for one exception. If Vince and Jennifer Antonucci will send uh, their innocent baby son, Dawson, to California and have him electrocuted in Charles Manson's place, in Charles Manson's cell, then Charles Manson will not only not be electrocuted, he'll be set free. Will you do it? No, <laughs> no, right? I would be like, is this some, I hope, I hope this is a joke, because no is the answer, and click, right? I mean, seriously, but who would do that? Well, God did. That's exactly, that's exactly what God did. Now, this is correct. Notice the illustration that he came up with steers into the, the uh, issue of justice and punishment i mean he so he's trying to describe jesus's death without having to say that god is angry or wrathful and yet the very illustration that he runs to reveals that he's holding out that he's kind of omitting stuff and what he said about god not being mad is not true It's weird, huh? It's the gospels popping out, even though he's trying to hide certain pieces of it. For you, when you were at your worst, when you were at your most sinful, your dirtiest, when you were God's enemy, God still loved you so much that he sent his son, not just anybody, he sent his one and only son. Yes, he did. To be executed in your cell on your behalf. Right, exactly. That's talking about the justice and the wrath of God, don't you think? God isn't mad. God isn't mad. Now, I've had this conversation with people quite a bit uh, where, where they kind of say, and it's, it's unbelievable. So then the conclusion God isn't mad. Yeah, if you had read verse 9 in chapter 5 of Romans, you wouldn't be saying that, but you omitted that on purpose. My God, if I went to church, I'd be struck by lightning. You know, if, if uh, I can't pray, God would never want to listen to my... And I, and I try to explain this whole thing to them. And, and even when I do, they say, oh, you don't know. You don't understand. And maybe some of you are thinking that, so let me voice your uh, objection. Some people will say, you don't get it, though. I've really sinned. We're not talking like, you know, the little... I mean, I've done some stuff, man. I, I wouldn't, I mean, I have really sinned, Vince. And, um, well, if I'm going to be honest with you, I'm still doing it. 
It's not like, you know, I used to, I mean, I'm still doing it. And so, I mean, God's got to be mad at me. I, I understand what you're saying. It may be true in general, in principle, but you, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. It's not, it's not true for me. And if you're thinking that, I guess my response would be, okay, yeah, you're, you're probably right. You are the one person in all of history that Jesus' death doesn't apply to. Yeah, that's probably right. You're, you're the one person. You're the one person that God can't forgive. The Bible says God so loved the world, blessed be loved the world, but you're the one person, really, that, that, God, that God can't love. I, I really doubt that. And when we think that thought, what it does is it reveals that we have a wrong view of God and that, that our, like our thinking is just kind of backwards. Let me help you, help you think of this and look at this the right way um, in this way. Uh, okay, now I'm going to point something out here. You're hearing a lot of gospel elements in this sermon, more so than we normally hear from anybody in the seeker-driven movement. The problem is, is that he's left out a key ingredient, and that has to do with the wrath of God. He's omitted a, a, a verse on purpose, and now he has the audacity to say that people have a wrong view of God, yet this entire sermon, he hasn't actually been painting an accurate view of God. God is just all love, but not there's no wrath to him. He's not handling the biblical text correctly, and he's not accurately uh, preaching about God here. Fascinating to listen to. I told you at the beginning of the story earlier, uh, October 6, 2002, Sean Hornbeck, 11-year-old boy, goes out riding his bike, vanishes. Uh, for the next four years, his parents spend their entire life savings, quit their jobs, spend all of their time trying to find their son, hire investigators to find their son. Finally, they give up hope. He, he's not going to be found. One day, um, four years later, they're driving down the highway, and dad's cell phone rings. He answers it, and the voice on the other end of the line identifies himself as a local prosecutor and says, are you sitting down? He says, I'm driving my car. And the voice on the other line says, uh, actually, why, why don't you pull over? So he pulls over. Now, the voice says, okay, here's the deal. We have good news. We think we found Sean. We're 95% sure. The father later said, and that was the phone call I had been waiting for for four years. And it is the phone call I will never forget. And maybe some of you uh, remember the story. Maybe you saw it on the news. But uh, just a little while later after getting that phone call, they were at the police station and the family standing there waiting. And, and a police car pulls up and out walks now 15-year-old Sean Hornbeck. And the family just starts going crazy. And they run over and they grab him and they have like this big family hug. And they're all like jumping up and down, just going crazy, celebrating it. And, and the father later said, he said, that was the embrace I wish would never end. Like, I just wish we could have lived in that hug for the rest of our lives. Okay? That's, that's what really happened. Here's the deal, though. I, I want you to think through that story again, but I just want to change one little detail. Okay? That's what really happened. But I'm just going to change one little detail in the story. So let's say uh, Sean disappears, four years of searching, give up hope, phone rings, pull over. The guy says, we have good news. We think we found Sean. We're 95% sure. Okay? But then let's say he said this. We also have a little bit of bad news. The way we found him 
is he was uh, actually shoplifting and he got caught. He's been living with a kidnapper for the last four years, and it seems that he's developed the habit of shoplifting. And, uh, and so we, we want to let you know he got caught shoplifting. Okay? Let's pretend. Do you think it's possible that hearing that, the father would say, oh, well then I'll tell you what. You tell Sean that he's not welcome at home anymore. We don't want him. Any chance? Any chance the father's going to say, no. Well, maybe you'd say this. Maybe you'd say, oh, well, then I'll tell you what. You tell Sean to clean up his act. And if he can stop shoplifting and he can kind of get himself straightened out for long enough to prove that he's serious about it, then he can come back home. But, but until then, now nah, we don't have shoplifters here. Any chance? No, right? Well, what's the dad going to say? I, I think he would say, shoplifting? Why are we talking about shoplifting? Who cares if he's shoplifting? You have my son. I need to hold him. Where is he? Get me to him. Get him home. I don't care if he's he's shoplifting. Why are you telling me this? Listen, I'm sorry he was shoplifting. Who knows why he was shoplifting? I haven't seen him in four years. But I'll tell you this. When he comes home and he experiences our love and our provision, I'm really confident he won't shoplift anymore, okay? And, and, And if he still continues to... Okay, notice that this metaphor he's using now empties the cross of its full power and Jesus' sufferings. Jesus suffered the wrath of God in our place. He's taking away. (laughs) I mean, serious, this is just so bad. Do it. We'll work through it then. Like, like we'll figure that out then. But right now, just a reminder, this story is not found in the Bible. He's not actually telling us what God has revealed about himself. This is just stuff he's making up. I just want to see my son bring him home. So, how can God love you with all you've done, where you've been, with with the fact that it's not that you sinned, you're still sinning? Well, that's how. That's how. How can you go to God and and pray and, and have intimacy with him, you know, this relationship with him when you know what you just did? Because Christ bled and died for it. He suffered the wrath of God in my place. Well, that's how. See, maybe you have the wrong picture of God. God is a perfect, loving father. And you? Yes, he is. You're his kid. You're his kid. And God's not mad. God's not mad. Yeah, the problem is is that you're drawing conclusions about God from a story you made up, not from what God has revealed about himself in his own word. That is not only problematic, it's wrong, and that's not what pastors are supposed to do. Why don't you read Romans chapter 5, verse 9, and explain that to us, why you left out the part about being saved from the wrath of God. And what he offers you is this real, authentic, deep relationship that is... No, what he's, what he's won for you is the forgiveness of your sins. The X factor. All you have to do is say yes. All you have to do is say yes and then start figuring out, what does that mean? All you got to do is say yes? That's Pelagianism. 
This is not. This is not uh, a proper biblical soteriology, and it's not a correct preaching of the cross. Like, what does it look like? How do I live in a relationship with God? And some of us are new to that, and we're trying to figure that out. And that's what we talk about every week here. We talk about, so, so how do we actually live in a relationship with God? How, do, how does it become real in our life? And how do we become authentic with God? And, and how do we go deep with him so that it really starts to change our lives? So it becomes this X factor that we have. Because, listen... If you get that, if you get this, if you get it, if you get the X factor, it will, it will, it will change everything for you. It will. There's a guy in the Bible um, named John. Uh, John wrote the book of John, and he wrote, a le- he wrote some other books in the Bible called First John, Second John, and Third John. John was not very creative in the titling of his writing projects. John, first John, second John, third John. But uh, John was one of Jesus' friends. Uh, he was one of the disciples, kind of the apprentices. And, and he later became one of the, the apostles, one of the people who kind of started the, the movement of, of Jesus' followers in the world. And, and he was one of the authors of the books of the Bible. And, and, but because he was one of Jesus' friends, he appears in his own writing. So the book of John tells the stories of Jesus' life, but John was often in those stories. There, there's something really peculiar when you read the book of John uh, John, whenever he mentions himself, calls himself the one Jesus loves. Like, it'd be like, he'll, he'll be walked right now, he'll be like, uh, Jesus was walking down the road with Peter and the one Jesus loves. And, and he's talking about himself. Or it'd be like, uh, Jesus reclined at the table. He was sitting next to Thomas and next to the one Jesus loves. And he was talking about himself. It's kind of cool. Like, I guess if you went to John and said, dude, who are you? Like, like, what's your primary identity in life? John would not say, me? I'm, I'm John. He wouldn't say, I, I was one of the disciples of Jesus. He wouldn't say, I was an apostle. I was one of the people who started the whole thing. He wouldn't say, I'm an author of four books of the Bible. You might have heard of John or of first and second and third John, the, the sequel. He wouldn't say that. He would say, me? I'm the one Jesus loves. There's a, a, a theory, some of you maybe have heard if you took uh, sociology or psychiatry. Psychiatry? Did I say that right? In uh, college, there's a, a theory, and, and pretty much everybody holds to it. It's called the looking glass self. You ever heard this? The looking glass self? Th- this theory that sociologists and psychiatrists have is that most people, almost everybody, will become what the, what the person that they think is the most important person in their life thinks they are. You will become what the most important person in your life thinks you'll become. Right now, there should be some like light bulbs going off over your head. Some people should be going, oh, like, that makes sense or anything because my dad always told me I was a no good loser and today I still fight against that. You know, I still think of myself that way and I'm trying, or, or my mom always told me I was this and I still think that. It starts to make sense, right? But, but let me ask you this. What if God became the most important person in your life? And what if you began to look at yourself the way God looks at you? What if you came to terms with God's love for you? What if when you looked in the mirror, you saw what God sees? What if your primary identity in life became me? 
I'm the one Jesus loves. You think that would change anything in your life? You think it would change how you walk around every day, how you feel about yourself, how you interact with other people, what happens or doesn't happen with your career. Everything, everything would change, wouldn't it? The deal is, God loves you. He's not mad. That's the X factor. It's this, it's this, yes, God does love you, and Christ died for you, but we're saved from the wrath of God. Real, authentic, deep relationship with God that we experience when we start to understand and live out this fact that God loves us and we can love him. God loves you. The only question is, and it's the question, Will you let him? No, that it's repent and be forgiven. It's repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's not will you let him? There's no gospel imperatives here. This is all just Pelagianism, you know, with kind of a seeker-driven spin to it. Sands without the uh, the the biblical wrath of God. As a result of it, the gospel doesn't even make any sense. I mean, seriously, if yeah, if you're gonna have a real argument, you know, the oh well, you know, are you gonna see yourself the way God sees you? Are you gonna look in the mirror and see yourself the way God sees you? Well, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes in in Ephesians chapter two that we all, by nature, uh, were objects of God's wrath. Um, yeah. So how exactly? I mean, how does God see us? And if God isn't mad, why didn't you read verse 9 of uh, chapter 5 that says that we're saved from the wrath of God? Hmm? I heard this uh, story, and I'll end with this, um, from a traveling preacher. This guy, he, he just goes from church to church, and he'll speak at a church for a weekend or a day or sometimes for a full week. And um, this one time he was saying that... Uh, he was preaching at a church for a week, and he was staying with a family in the church. He had never met them, uh, but they welcomed him in, a nice family. Um, they, they had a, a son, an older son. He was like college age, and uh, the traveling preacher said, I, I sat there all week, but I never saw him. I, I would, like, eat breakfast with the family, often eat dinner with the family, but I never saw him. I, I guess because he, it turns out uh, from his parents, they, they told me he's a real party animal. Like, I mean, like, it was pretty bad. Like, I'd come home at night after speaking at the church, and he'd be out partying, and then uh, I'd get up, and I wouldn't have to go back to the church till around lunchtime or so, but he was still sleeping off, you know, the hangover from the night before, and so I, I never saw him. Uh, but, but then the last night came, the night that you know, the, before the morning I was going to leave the town. And um, I spoke at the church, and afterwards everyone said, hey, can we take you out for dinner and dessert? We re- appreciate you so much. And, and so I went out, and we stayed out kind of late. And, and when I got back, I realized that his car was in the driveway. I guess he got home a little early, and I was late. And I thought, oh, well, finally I get to meet him. But when I went in, I, I could tell that everybody was asleep, and all the lights were out. And, and, and so I thought, well, maybe his door's open. I, I could at least peek in and see what he looks like. And, and so this... Um, pastor, he says he, he kind of tiptoed down the hallway, and then he got to the doorway, and he peeked in to see if the, the son was in there, and, and he said, what I saw stopped me in my tracks. I just became fixated on the strange beauty of what was happening. I couldn't take my eyes off. I couldn't move. He said the, the son was in there, and he was laying obviously passed out on his bed. But the strange thing, the beautiful thing, 
is that his mother was sitting next to him in the bed, and she was just patiently, lovingly stroking his hair. And he said, I just, I just stared for a long time. And, and finally, she realized that I was there, and she looked up kind of startled, and, and I felt embarrassed. And, and then she spoke words I will never forget. She looked at me, and she said, almost half apologizing, You won't let me love him when he's awake. See, the reality is, God loves you. The only question is, will you let him? Will you let him? He's not mad. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Vince is not telling people the truth. All right. I'm done. Here's what we do uh, pretty much every week is um, we just give you a couple minutes to, to sit with that, with whatever you experienced tonight, whatever uh, meant something to you. Uh, our, our, um, our goal here is for you not to just leave and... Um, kind of leave everything here, but, but to figure out before you leave, maybe, what do I do with this? Yeah, what do I do with it? I mean, you totally painted the, a false picture of God, made him into kind of a powerless, just lovey-dovey guy, but no wrath, no anger, and uh, Jesus' cross doesn't make any sense at all. Since you said you're done, we're done. So, I mean, so here's the problem. He, is that this isn't this? I mean, there were so many big problems here. Number one, uh, we're the passages I read made it clear that we're dead in trespasses and sins. We don't choose God; God chooses us. And the call of the gospel is repent and be forgiven. It's not let God love you. That's not the call, and it's false. It's absolutely a lie that God has no wrath. All of the passages I read tonight make it clear that we are saved from the wrath of God, and those who do not believe remain under the wrath of God. As a result of it, I mean, if anyone was truly brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins as a result of the sermon, it wasn't because of the sermon, it was in spite of it. Because the biblical gospel did pop out partway through, but then he did everything he could to kind of get rid of the important element, the, the important element being wrath and justice and punishment. The biblical text is clear. We have all earned and have deserved the wrath of God. None is righteous, not even one, not me, not you, not nobody. And God's wrath will soon be revealed against all ungodliness on the great day that Christ returns. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you have. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The one who believes is saved. The one who doesn't believe is condemned already. The one who doesn't believe the wrath of God remains on him. 
God is both loving and just. God punishes sins in his anger and wrath, and at the same time, he is also merciful, loving, and forgiving. And the reason why God is loving and merciful and forgiving towards you and I, who by nature were enemies with God, is because Jesus Christ shed blood on the cross, propitiated propitiated the wrath of God in our place. And God's wrath was satisfied. His anger and his justice were satisfied and propitiated. This is what the biblical text says. It is a lie to say that God is not mad. He is. Repent and be forgiven because your God is also merciful. And Christ has satisfied the justice of God and paid your debt for you in full. Repent and be forgiven. All right, so we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. Just a reminder, this is Listener Supported Radio. Visit our website and support us. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.